Hey there, Internet. I can't know for sure, but I'm going to go ahead and guess that you woke up this morning thinking, hey, if only there was a place I could hear a bunch of cool people talk about video games. Well, then we've got a show for you. From developer interviews to casual conversation, from exciting indie titles to fresh takes on your favorite games, this is the Gamers with Glasses Podcast. Hey folks, this is the Gamers with Glasses show and I'm Christian Haynes and I'm joined today by Roger Whitson. Hello. And Don Everhart. Hi. And today we're just doing a general episode, kind of catching up on what we've been playing, maybe doing a little console talk. Uh, you know, Don still got his uh, PlayStation 3 plugged in, so that's what he's been rocking What I, from what I hear. Uh, I definitely do. Yes. But, you know, Don's playing an original DS at the same time, too. So we don't know what's going on with this guy. Uh, but yeah, Roger, do you want to start us off? What have you been playing lately? Oh, yeah, I think I will. I have two games. So I'm still coming off of my Elden Ring high. And I, I think uh, I really want I really want them to to announce a DLC I think they're gonna have right. They'll have a DLC to that game. Come on, is money um, on the table if they don't? I was a little Do disappointed. I was I was a little disappointed with the Sekiro uh, the DLC. It was kind of fun, but it was weird. I it was not really a DLC in my opinion. It was anyway. Um, I have two games that I've just been kind of kind of messing around with. One is Cult of the Lamb. Um, which I think I talked a little bit to y'all about it on the, on the Slack channel. Um, I love this game. It's, uh, everything that I could possibly want in a game. You have a Zelda like action and this kind of survival crafting game, which is really a cult simulator. And I get to do really horrible things to cute animals. Um, so for instance, uh, <laughs> thus, thus validating every moral panic about video games. A right? later where you where you can do terrible things to cute animals. I um, know so many people from the eighties and nineties looking to score political points just perked their ears up and went, "This is exactly what I always told you video games were like." And now there's Absolutely. a literal video game where you do all of those things. Absolutely, and. And what I love is like, you're actually a lamb, right? So like, there's this whole metaphor of the lamb of God. So like you go on these little quests and defeat monsters. And then uh, halfway through, you get to like convert, you know, these, these little critters. And the first one that I got was a little, was a little uh, cartoon pig. And, uh, and they look so cute. Like they look like something out of like Disney or something like that. Right. And you send them back to your, to your um to your little cult area and they pray for you and they give you power by praying for you um but that's not all you can do so the two things that i you know i'm playing this game and i'm kind of like i'm enjoying it but i have all these weird moments where i'm like is it okay that i'm doing this like it's kind of like it's weird in that so uh you know they're they're adorable they can't eat for them so you have to like make their food for them I've been, you know, one thing that's really been interesting about this is like, I've been, uh, uh, my girlfriend and I've been gotten closer and I'm starting to watch her kids and kind of, a, kind of developing relationships with her kids. And like, just this sort of like, I've started to become really fascinated with vulnerability and like just the vulnerability of your flock in this game. Like, it's just, they're adorable. You want them to succeed. You want them to like, and then you can do things that are really bad. Like if you uh, are on one of your quests and you end up dying, 
you can sacrifice one of them to cut, get back alive. Like that was to resurrect yourself. And like the first time I did it, I was like, do I want to do that? And now I'm just doing it left and right. Like I'm just sacrificing everyone. No big deal. Like, you know, like, okay, die, die for your God. Right. Like that's kind of my, my opinion in that, in that case. And the other thing you can do is like, you can create like these demon kind of little mini fighters that come with you. And like one of them will like gather, um, one of them will shoot at your enemies ever so often. And another will uh, gather focus points that you use to like cast these spells called curses. And uh, you can you can transform your followers into these demons. And, and that's kind of cool too, and bizarre and weird and kind of disturbing and, so it's a perfect Halloween game, I think, for those of you. And, and it's perfect for people who are fascinated by cults because you also do things like you, sometimes you'll have a cult member who will uh, kind of stop believing in you. So you have to re-educate them. And so there's this whole process whereby you like, you have to like go to them every day and, and, uh, and uh, give them the scripture and, and stuff like that. So I've been really enjoying Cult of Lamb. It's really fun. Um, and the second game that I, the second game that I've been playing is Inscription, which I didn't get to play this last year when it came out because, uh, wasn't it originally on like PC and I, yeah, it, it, Xbox had, it or something? seemed like it had some things that were related mechanically to that. So I, I've been curious. It was just PC back. Yeah. Yeah. Have you how, all- how it's made the transition to, to consoles. I also just want to point out. For, for our listeners, that Roger's Cult of the Lamb description was delivered from a scene in which there is the reflection of a, a church wall with a large crucifix in the window immediately behind him. So, you know, I just I just want you to know that we do thematically appropriate settings with our podcast. This, I have to say this game has inspired me to really start thinking about intentional communities, y'all. Like I really want to create something that gets us out of this horrible modern lifestyle we're in and gets us closer to the divine. Like that's really what I'm I'm looking for. So like, yeah, like you know that in a it. year from now, Roger is gonna be on CNN as a famous cult leader. <laughs> <laughs> Grow out a really long beard and like you you heard it here first, you know. Right. People listening to Gamers the Glasses podcast are gonna be ahead of the curve yeah. for whatever cult Roger has. And I know that our fans turn it tune in for, for Roger already. You're incredibly charismatic in that regard. And That's, this is I just am the, the next star. Step. I am actually the messiah of this podcast. Like I will I I I spread the word. Right. People should be listening to these podcasts every day to make sure that they keep their faith in a literal lamb. Yeah, it is a literal lamb. I feel like there's not really much metaphor in this game. There's not not much. The charm is it's just right out there. Oh, go ahead, Christian. I was going to say, going back to Cult of the Lamb for a moment, because I played... I played, I think, through the first few bosses, but as often happens for me, I have a hard time sticking to games where crafting and like farm management are central yeah. elements. That's just not my jam. Although this one definitely kept me around longer because of the combat. How did you? How do you feel about the combat in the game? Because there's a dungeon diving element, right? Yeah, I sense that the combat. I mean, I don't think either. It's almost like they. Um, the combat isn't like great and neither is the, is the crafting uh, part of the game, but they kind of come together in interesting ways. So you have to like, you have to really time out when you go on these quests as you get more into the game, because your, your followers may all be like stricken with some crazy disease, but wait while you're gone and end up, half of them might end up dying if you don't take care of them or tell them to go to sleep. They literally can't, go to sleep on their own they have to be told to sleep i think that's hilarious like they'll go to sleep at night but if they're sick they'll just like walk around and you're like hey you think you should get some rest because you're you're kind of sick they're true believers oh yeah sure master la 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 yeah so um i kept getting so frustrated when you would get the dissidents you know i forget what the the, like oh yeah the heathens essentially the people that were like breaking away from your cult and then trying to preach some word of some other god 
And I, I just, I mean, I would sacrifice them as soon as I could. Yeah, they, they would be the like... first to be sacrificed. They need to do good work for uh for the for our god you know like and they're just kind of wasting my time like if if they're not gonna like pray to give me more power they might as well sacrifice their life have you played this don at all i have not but i i think that there is a a good segue coming up from it once (laughs) we once we have uh roger's thoughts also on inscription the animation for like the heathen or like the person that's breaking away from your cult is so good. He's got like a megaphone, (laughs) you know, and he's just like, you know, kind of like swiveling back and forth with this megaphone spewing out the false word. Uh, The graphics are are perfect. Like the the sort of cartoony element. I mean, even like, even something as simple as, as cleaning up, uh, your 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 followers uh, uh, excrement is just delightful because you get out this like nice little like like uh, broom and like your lamb is like happy while he's doing it and you hear this boop, and it just like appears you can you can use it as fertilizer right it's just um, there's something about the the sound effects and the and the cutesiness of the of the of the graphics that that really uh, that, that are really appealing to me. Hey, cute, cuteness and apocalypse go hand in hand around here. Yeah, this, this is a, a recurring theme. <laughs> yep, totally. So, so tell us um, about your inscription journey. Well, I I wondered what it's y- hard to y'all... spoil or hard not to spoil the yeah. Story, like, so what did know. you all like? Give me like you played it about a year ago, right? And right, did you play it, Christian? I or did. did. Don, I I played. So what I will say is that I played it to a point where there's a huge shift in the game. I don't know yeah. if you've gotten there. Yeah. Uh, I played it on PC. Uh, mm-hmm. As you guys know, I am a, I'm a parent of a young child. And this comes into play because said young child needed attending to right as it was shifting <laughs> into uh, the other mode of the game. Yeah. And there is let's call it a cutscene that happens mm. that there is mm. no way to go back to oh, and so i exited out of it during this thinking that oh it would have auto saved or oh my save would have functioned in such a way that i would have been able to see this again mm-hmm. nope and mm-hmm. so that was it for me because there was such a huge contextualizing element that I did kind of mess around with the next portion of gameplay because the game does radically change what you're doing in a lot of ways. But it, it like, I don't know. I, yeah. It lost something for me, but I actually do want to go back to it and I'll probably talk about why I'm going to go back to it soon in a little while, but I'm going to, how's your experience been Roger? Uh, well, and, and maybe reason, like set it up for people, like set up the, what yeah. the game starts as. Well, the reason I started playing it was because it it's finally uh, dropped on PlayStation. Mm-hmm. um after a year and i wanted to play it last year like everyone was talking about his game of the year like everyone was like oh this is the game blah 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 um and so i would say those of you so it's not a game so what's fascinating too is like a lot of people who started playing the game for kind of like slay the spire or roguelike uh deck builder games right it seems like when you're starting the game that that's exactly what this is and uh, the first sort of like part of the game followed that pretty that 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 formula pretty well. You're in this sort of like dark cabin. There's kind of a horror feel to it. Um, it and and plus I'm I'm in this moment in the year like I for some reason when September started I was suddenly ready for Halloween. Like I've just been like bring on the horror right now, bring it on. That's all I want. Um, and so I was enjoying that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that the, you know, it took me a little while to figure out how to build a a deck that would, that would do well in the context of the game itself. Um, but I find that process to be really fun. It's part of the reason why I like deck building games is just sort of trying to figure out the, the, the mechanics of the game itself. Right. Um, and I would say like, in terms of the other side of it that I think needs to be said without spoiling is that this game is not going to end up i guess what people think it's you know they there's going to be a pretty huge shift in how you play the game when you get to a certain part of it um 
there's been sort of like, and I don't know if this happened when it came out on PC, but I, I read a little bit about uh, a lot of a lot of players becoming uh, really angry and saying that almost to the point of saying like this is sort of false advertising. Um, I think ultimately, I haven't even got to the part where uh, I even know narratively what's happening <laughs> with the story. <laughs> like it's a very <laughs> Did you complicated miss a scene. There's, I got the cutscene. Yeah, I got it. I don't think that helps. I don't think the cutscene helps, to be honest. Like, I kind that of have a good news for Christian. Right? I have a broad sense of the story, kinda. I know, I but I don't want to say anything without giving spoilers away, right? I have a broad sense of the story. I still don't quite understand how the cutscenes fit in. I don't quite get it. So without like without spoiling anything, I just want to like maybe make a little explicit some of what I think you're alluding to, Roger. Yeah. Which is this deck building game, and no, and the horror element and the deck building element stay somewhat constant. But this is also a game about games in a lot of ways, yeah. and maybe about the yeah. connection between horror and games, which is like you know even if you think about like the Saul movies, right? Like the Saul movies yeah. are like game show the horror you know kind of at least from one perspective um and this game you know i bring that up because this game has a lot in common with that even the opening situation is sort of reminiscent of saul you're trapped in a cabin and you have to like sort of play your way out and so i'm, I'm bringing this up because i do i do think this is both like this is a very meta game to use yeah. that well-known yeah. word uh but it has a sense of humor and it's also allows itself to indulge in some proper horror at the same time. Um, and I want to keep playing and I want to go back to it because horror and humor do not always like that. There's a tension between them that it's hard to like have both work well without say like having the horror just evolve in the humor. And I'm kind of curious. I, if it can I think the best the humor. Yeah. I think the best humor it does that. Right. Like, so you look at the works of Junji Ito, for instance, like, like who does these sort of horror manga, right? And it's like, you can't tell if what you're watch reading is hilarious or horrifying. Like they're, it's both at the same time. But I would say like one way that I, I, would, I would try to describe this game to somebody is that it's if you took a deck building game like Slay the Spire and then mashed it together with the Stanley Parable and made it into a horror game. <laughs> you know it's like has, it That's has all these elements to it to the point where like i'm at sort of like the end i'm at mostly the end of the game i'm in the end past parts of the game um and it it doesn't just shift once it shifts actually twice pretty majorly right. okay and i'm in that yeah, second part, that. Third yeah. part and uh i still don't quite understand and i think i've heard people say like even after you beat it hmm there's still a lot more <laughs> there are mods there's this there's this right. weird mod that's supposed to totally change the entire game so i'm fascinated by it i think that it it probably like if i get to the point where like i kind of understand what's going on i think it will be one of the good game the great games i play uh of the year um but i can also understand why somebody who's looking for a very specific experience like somebody who might be attracted to this game very specifically just for a deck building game would be angry by what happens with the product progression. Luckily okay. for said person, there is no shortage of deck building games. That's true. That's absolutely and If true. anything, there is a kind of like glut. Yeah. 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 I'm, I, I still haven't I, played Monster Train. Like I still haven't played Monster Train. So I'm oh, like Monster Train is good. Monster Train's really so, good. Um, yeah. I think you'll like that. Uh, yeah. I think maybe we should talk about doing like a spoiler cast on it because I don't. I forget if Nate has yeah. played Inscription yet, but if he hasn't, he kind of has to. It's such a yeah, neat game. It is. Um, oh, it totally. I'm sure, is. we can ask around to you know contributors to the site to see who all has played Inscription, because I yeah. get the feeling that given the opportunity to actually talk about it in a free, like open way for people who have been playing it, that it, yeah. you know, there'd be a lot of enthusiasm there. I yeah. totally agree. Don, tell us how Kirby is holding up. Speaking of horror shows. Oh, yes, um, uh, ab absolutely. And unequivocally. So I, last time on Don plays every mainline Kirby game, 
in one year. I, which, which I'm very close to, to finishing. Um, I said uh, that I would probably be playing Kirby Squeak Squad. And yes, I have been playing Kirby Squeak Squad at, you know, irregular intervals, uh, which is helpful because it's a Nintendo DS original game. So, you know, just sort of pick it up and, and play a couple levels and find a few treasure chests and, you know, have a good time. Uh, it takes advantage of the two screens of the Nintendo DS by having the lower screen be a small version of the pocket universe that is Kirby's stomach, which I don't think any other game does. Uh, and, and it's fascinating because there's limited room in Kirby's so, stomach. I'm confused. So like, what, what is the stomach? What do you, what do you like? That's just like, that's really weird. Like you're yes. in the stomach, you're in Kirby's stomach. It's like you're in this kind of weird singularity that is Kirby's stomach. Yes. So, unlike- I mean, it makes sense, right? How can Kirby suck all of these things in? Well, it turns out there was a universe inside of Kirby. And so therefore there was infinite room for things to go. Right. But, it, but in Squeak Squad, there's only room for five things to go <laughs> into Kirby's stomach. Um, this stuff just becomes existential for me really fast. And I start to have nightmares about yep. Kirby's stomach. Okay. Well, okay. well it, right. it's confusing because in, in other games, it's implied that uh, the pocket universe that is inside Kirby, the character, is near limitless, but that Kirby isn't always in a state where he can wield uh, the limitlessness of that pocket universe. And it's only under special conditions with, you know, particular kinds of fruit uh or you know special magical things that grow off of vines or urgent situations or mechanical gods that grant wishes there's two of those uh in the series um in between superstar and uh planet robobot and uh in most of those eventually kirby's stomach is uh so universe shattering that in Kirby Triple Deluxe for the 3DS, when you're sucking in and inhaling the final boss of the game, uh, speaking of, of meta game elements, Kirby is capable of not just inhaling the boss, but actually elements of the UI, including the boss's health bar. So the consumption that Kirby is capable of is so universe-breaking that it reaches out from the game in Triple Deluxe and inhales the elements of the video game itself. That, that is how astounding Kirby's capacity is. And yet in Squeak Squad, five things. You get five spots, which is more than the one spot that you typically have when you're playing a Kirby game. Because usually throughout the game, unless it's under one of those special conditions, you can only have one power held at a time. You don't hang on to items. Uh, you know, if you touch an item in the world, that's the thing that happens to Kirby right then. And having uh, five spots in the stomach gives room for this extra sort of item management thing, which I don't think happens in any other Kirby game, where, you know, you can pick up little pieces of the one-up uh, Kirby token. And if you pick up three of them, then you get a full one up. So, but you know, that's a lot of slots then that you're, you're dedicating at a time you can consolidate them as you go, but you know, that's one more slot that you can't have like a healing item, or you can't have a power item that so that you can switch to the power of your choice whenever you want. Uh, and the other, other element of this is that there's a treasure hunting element to the game and you want to leave enough room in Kirby's stomach so that he can carry around all of the treasure chests that you can only open at the end of the level. Uh, so there, there's this added complication there. And it also goes with the main uh, idea of the game, which is that uh, Kirby is about to eat a nice piece of strawberry cake. This is the opening. This is the story of the game. Sits down, a nice piece of strawberry cake. And these mouse thieves, the Squeak Squad, steal it. Extremely distressing. So Kirby goes through dozens of levels, and in most of the levels, there is a one of these mouse thieves in it, and they are trying to get you know the, the most special treasure chest to the level. And you can beat them up and take the chest and put it in Kirby's stomach, 
And then at the end of the level, uh, if you have done that successfully, you get to open the chest. This is, this is an unusual mix of things. And, and yet the overall uh, approach to playing uh, Kirby in the game is extremely usual. It, it's kind of a, a blend of Kirby's adventure style uh, gameplay, a little bit of superstar animations, a little bit of amazing mirror level design here and there, although I wish there was even more because I love Amazing Mirror, it turns out. And uh, it's the, probably the most underrated Kirby game. And whenever I see anything that calls back to it, I'm like, oh, this is like 1% of Amazing Mirror. I wish I could have like 20 or like 100% again. I, I'm just wondering how like, do kids play this game? Like, is this like, <laughs> like, is this just like fine? Like, I would be freaking out if I played this game. These are children's games. That's, wow. that's not the type of kid thing, though, that freaks kids out. That's the type of thing that freaks out I folks know. that are, like, entering into I middle age. I love stuff like that. I know. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. They don't even care. Yeah. They're well, like, yeah, I'm just in like Kirby's a... stomach, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I should say, this isn't like a... The, in, the interior of Kirby, it has a relatively simple background, uh, but it isn't, like, pink cotton candy fluff it's not like internal organ juiciness and gore. It's it's just this like blue and white and black like spiral space. That's that's the background of the bottom screen of the DS. That sounds about right. You can drop and regurgitate uh, Kirby Kirby's collection of things that he's bringing with him on this adventure. That sounds great. Why not? I'd recommend it. Squeak Squad is is one of the good ones so far. All right. What else has been on your plate? I've been playing a lot of games lately, but the one that I really wanted to talk about is Sin and Punishment for the Nintendo 64. That's the Walking Dead game, is that right? <laughs> no, wait. I'm thinking of Sin and... Uh... In any case, it doesn't matter. It's a VR game is I'm thinking of. Sin and Punishment so, for the Nintendo 64. That, that's right. Uh, Roger is playing Cult of the Lamb. I'm playing or uh, recently played Sin and Punishment. Um, this is perfect. We should do a, Oh my gosh, we should do a, like, a, like a Cult, Sin, like gaming roundup kind of thing. Like all of the games that are like obsessed with like weird Nate religious stuff. is going stuff. to be furious that we <laughs> that had not this here. episode yeah. without him. <laughs> Absolutely. And, we're in the, this is the emerging theme of the podcast. Uh, this is Nate's jam. And, and yet, uh, so, so sin and punishment, the relation of that title to what happens in, in the game and what you do in the game is not tightly connected to put it mildly. <laughs> It is a rail shooter by Treasure, uh, which is a, a, a dev that I've mentioned before on the show. Um, purveyor of, of strange shoot-em-ups, uh, odd platformers, sometimes officially licensed by Nintendo. Uh, and, and two games in the Sin and Punishment duology, uh, Sin and Punishment for the N64 and Sin and Punishment Star Successor for the Wii. And I played Star Successor uh, a while ago, last year, and, and really enjoyed it. Um, I, I love rail shooters in general, uh, games like Res and Panzer Dragoon and, and Sin and Punishment, uh, not to mention all of the arcade shooters that would fall under it, like House of the Dead or Area 51, to name some classics. Sin and Punishment for the N64 is one that I only played recently uh, with the Switch Online Pass, uh, that subscription service. And the rail shooting is very good, although the control scheme is the this is the only game in the world that uses this control scheme uh, because the N64 controller was so odd and Treasure decided, you know what, this is so strange, but everyone is sort of defaulted to using this one way of doing it. And we are going to make people hold the controller in a completely different way so that they can play this game that technically has a sword swinging and you can move your character and dump, jump and double jump and dodge. Uh, all while being thrown through scenes where you're running or flying on a platform 
or otherwise being moved uh, along this invisible rail through each level, level shooting hundreds of baddies uh, and also a boss probably every two to three minutes. Um, they do not skimp out on the boss fighting. Uh, within a level, there are usually several bosses uh, to face. The plot of Sin and Punishment, I believe, and I would love other people to play this and corroborate my opinion, I think if I had not played Star Successor first, which is a game that came out many years later and an entire system later on the Wii, I don't think I would have found the plot of the N64 original comprehensible in the slightest. I think it would be a completely and wholly opaque video game. I don't, th they, they do not introduce the characters. No, no character has any description of who they are or how they relate to one another. You're thrown into the middle of the plot. There's no beginning uh, to the game. And the end is... So in the end of the game, I don't mind spoiling this, a character that you've been accompanied with for about three quarters of the game who appears to have transformational powers on humanity uh, transforms into a false simulacrum of the planet Earth which then you destroy because it shoots lasers and asteroids at you. The asteroids, I think, ripped from the terrain of the false Earth, and you shoot them, and it parries them back into the Earth, the false Earth, as you're protecting the Earth. By the way, you're also a uh, unpredictably transforming, potentially cosmic monster kaiju person, though it is unclear what causes the character, the main character to transform into that kaiju or what causes them to transform back into the person that they return to being at the end of the game. Uh, it's, it is a confusing, colorful, kaleidoscopic, shooter journey only takes about an hour or two to play if you go straight through and abuse continues uh, which the game invites you to do you can continue as much as you want it just resets your score you know it's an arcade game and uh there there isn't it's a singular game there is nothing like this video game no other game likes sin and punishment from the way that it controls to its plot to its incomprehensibility to how much fun it is. At one point, you are playing a scene where you are you first break into an aircraft carrier and shoot it up. And then the being that you're with tears off part of the bulkhead, and then you surf on the bulkhead in unpredictable patterns around an entire aircraft carrier fleet. And you shoot, you destroy an entire aircraft car carrier fleet with your laser gun that you have while you're being telekinetically flying around on a piece of ripped off boat bulkhead. Uh, it's incredible. I mean, the funny part of this, right, is that like on the one hand, like when you actually like articulate the narrative, when you like spell the story out, it sounds batshit crazy. But on the other hand, this is just what happens when you actually try to give a story to any of the like 80s and like early to mid 90s Japanese shmups, right? Like they That's are right. all insane, right? But you don't think about it because they're not trying to present you a story. You're just scrolling along the screen. But as soon as it hits 3D, for some reason you hit 3D, right? You add that third dimension and people feel like, oh, well, it's getting closer to quote unquote reality. So we have to actually highlight the story or emphasize the story. And we're just going to keep going with the conventions. But now you're going to notice the fact that like it never made any sense. Gladius never made any sense, right? It's like it didn't need to. It it is it is very similar. I mean, all of the wonderful, bizarre art elements of a game like R Type, where you get these giant biomechanical worlds that you fly your tiny little spaceship into and destroy from the inside. You know, right? If if those had an accompanying story about what kind of cosmic being the setting actually involves you flying into and shooting up it probably would look something like sin and punishment it's just that sin and punishment has cutscenes with with dialogue uh dialogue that 
the voice acting is often either the voice acting is so poor or the mixing is so poor that although the subtitles for the game were only uh, hard-coded in Japanese and not in English, even with my incredibly limited Japanese, I often found it helpful to have the subtitles in another language that I barely read because occasionally it would allow me to pick up, oh, this is that character's name. <laughs> that that wanna, sound I just, just heard on the name. Oh, this is yeah. that character. Let's just highlight Don's wonderful little humble brag there. Uh, my little bit of Japanese. Uh, <laughs> it's terrible. I, I, no, I, I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I, have, I have no fluency in this language. But I, anything, I'm just trying to grab onto absolutely anything to be able to make any sense out of what's going on in the plot of Sin and Punishment. Uh, and, you know, luckily, I know where the story is going in Star Successor. And I know that, and it is a direct sequel, like the events of Star Successor uh, happen very soon in cosmic time, like a couple decades after Sin and Punishment, uh, and, and are heavily reliant on a few decades later, a, a whole cosmic jury, uh, or like, uh, I, I suppose, space cop organization, maybe there's your punishment, uh, comes to Earth, which has been destroyed by the events of Sin and Punishment. Uh, and they're like, hey, so this planet has been wrecked by this cosmic being. And it potentially also left some like cosmic being human hybrids around, which that they could probably destroy the rest of the universe. So we have to eradicate everything on Earth. Details, uh, details. Which, you know, hey, all right. Uh, you know, on, all, of a, all of a sudden, right, I start talking about Star Successor and it's like, hey, wait. This game almost makes sense now. In retrospect, right? The, if, if that is what happens in Sin and Punishment, then watching the scenes in Sin and Punishment start to take on a little bit of sense of, oh, so this character that can transform things is from another play, place in space and time. And they come to Earth to give Earth this horrible mutation transformation tool which is so feared by the rest of the cosmos that it wrecks total destruction on earth but the human cosmic horror hybrids stop that thing from completely doing its thing and then in the next game the space cops arrive and are like whoa cosmic horror human hybrids we have got to deal with this and of course you know as, as the remnants of humanity in this situation, you blow the absolute shit out of the space cops in Sin and Punishment, Star Successor, uh, which is, I mean, that game is fantastic. That's one of my favorite games. How many games do you get to blow the shit out of space cops instead of just being a space cop? So many games you play the space cops. I mean, this sounds great to me. It almost makes me like actually want to know the story of it. Almost. I, I, if you do, and you want to participate in an experiment, I would be really curious if you played Sin and Punishment N64 first, and then Star Successor second, to let me know if the N64 version made any sense before you played the sequel. Because from where I'm sitting, the only way I was able to make sense of it was because I had already played a game that came out like eight years after uh, first, I played them out of order and it made them make more sense. So that you gave me a pretty good segue into talking about some of what I've been doing. And I, I want to talk about some <laughs> games. I want to talk about some games. Mostly what I want to do is rave about the Steam Deck, which I've only had for a few days, but is like, you know, a game changer, as it were. I'm going to talk about some games. But I do want to talk about some games. So first, what I want to talk about is Joy-Con Drift. <laughs> Because that's probably why I will not play Sin and Punishment is because right now it's not horrible, but it's just bad enough. And it's my second pair of Joy-Cons that I've encountered this problem with. And I love Nintendo games. I've been playing Nintendo games since 1986. Uh, it was the, the first thing I ever touched with Super Mario Brothers on the NES. And I still love that game. Wait, do you mean like there's an image of you as like 
like an infant, like reaching out your hand and grabbing like a. No, no, I played it when I was three. You can't can't play it well, but you can play Nintendo games. What did did you play? Super Mario? Yeah. 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 And so, you know, like, I love these games, but Nintendo fixed the Joy Cons. It's been five years. Fix them. So, by. You just play the two. I'm 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 gonna I, act stupid because I haven't played my Switch in a while. But like the Joy Cons are the two that are on yeah, the side. Of on the, the side, yeah, and I almost a, exclusively play in handheld. And yeah. it's not a big deal. But I've you know I've had to start over some shrines in Breath of the Wild recently because of this, uh, <laughs> just because of little, you know, forced errors, as it were. Uh, the Switch is and the Switch is also like broad, like it's 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 wide enough. It's just wide enough that it's almost like hard to sync the left and right when you're playing in that mode. At least that's my been my experience. Like it, it seems a little too wide for me. Yeah, I mean that's a, that hasn't been an issue really for me. It's it's just there, you know, there are just a little a few issues when you get the Joy-Con drift, which the folks don't know is like when you actually get movement without actually pushing uh, the controller or when there's an exacerbated movement on the analog stick when you do push it and it just keeps going uh rant aside i've been replaying breath of the wild and that's been wonderful uh because it's breath of the wild and we don't have need to talk more about that it on switch or have you been playing an upgraded emulated version on your steam deck i so i haven't done that yet i haven't done that yet i i'm definitely thinking about it and but before i get to the Steam deck what i will say is the game that i most want to talk about just for a few minutes is Immortality, uh, which, you know, FMV game uh, by Sam Barlow, uh, most known for her story. Immortality is pretty great. It is, the premise is that there is this actress who was in all of these films that were never released and you're sifting through the footage of it. And for some reason, I mean, there's like this weird meta moment where it's like Sam Barlow's game company actually was the ones that received this footage, you know, and they sort of like released it, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it's That's a little, little cutesy. Layer. Yeah, it, it is. It's a little cutesy and it doesn't do much, but this is by far the best work that Sam Barlow has done, you know, telling lies, her story do not compare to this. The acting is better. The just, three different periods because it's uh let's see it's a it's a late 60s uh horror sort of movie or like campy horror movie an adaptation of uh oh, what is that gothic novel um i'm forgetting it at the moment um there's a sort is, it, of 70s, is it udolfo is it yes udolfo? i think it's yeah, udolfo yeah. yeah there's a 70s uh 1970s uh sort of grind film about, you know, an artist and murder and things and artists muse and murder. And then there's finally a kind of nineties, like femme fatale uh, sort of film. And they're all like, I mean, they're enjoyable to watch and the stuff that happens in it is really interesting. But when it comes down to it without trying to spoil too much is that there's a very much a twin peaks kind of layer here which you notice right away because you notice that the actress is not aging right and so the question right away becomes why is this actress not aging and then there's a kind of element where you fast forward and you rewind and as you fast forward and rewind things start to appear that would not have appeared otherwise and there's an entire other narrative that kind of emerges from within these films uh, that deals with questions of artistic inspiration and the human condition and violence um, and the role of women in artistic inspiration uh, and the figure of the muse. And it's just damn good. I played it through Game Pass on the Xbox. Um, I highly recommend anybody that is playing it to use their D-pad sometimes when they're rewinding, because one thing that the game does not tell you is that there are certain things that will unlock only if you use the D-pad and do frame by frame at certain moments. Although you can quite literally feel through haptic feedback that you're encountering something that you should be seeing. And so I would say pay attention to the haptic feedback 
rewind. And when you hear, feel more haptic feedback, use the D-pad to go frame so by frame. That, that makes me curious. There's an adaptation of immortality coming uh, to the, the little known and probably less played uh, Netflix games offering. Netflix yeah. has video games. If you have a yes. subscription, you can play yeah. them on your phone. How, How are they going to handle that? Yeah. I honestly don't know. I, I hope that they incorporate some kind of visual element that substitutes for the haptic feedback because the haptic feedback makes it so much easier to find those moments in which, without getting too much into it, the supernatural emerges from within the filmic. There's a really interesting sort of media archaeological component here, Roger, that I think you would be like especially interested in. Um I will say I mentioned Lynch here, and one of the co-writers is one of David Lynch's regular co-writers, including for Mulholland Drive, if I'm remembering correctly. And this is very Mulholland Drive. Um, it is honestly, it's one of the best things I've played in a couple of years and is easily at the top of my list for experiences that I've had this year. Um, what, were, what were the other games that it's Sam Marlowe? Is that what you said? Sam Barlow. Barlow. What were the other yeah. things that this person? Her story is probably his most well-known one. There's been a lot of academic writing on that too, as well as games journalism. He's also interesting as somebody who, I forget if he started out in, I don't think he started out in games journalism, but he has been part of games journalism and that he regularly contributed to the magazine Edge. He had a column in the magazine Edge, which he still sometimes contributes to about narrative and games. It's really good, the column. Um, uh, and yeah, so, I mean, that that was a real highlight of my game playing experience recently. I also played the New Saints Row, which I didn't finish, but I did enjoy. It's very, like, it's definitely a little bit of Steve Buscemi, like, hey, kids, uh, energy going on, uh, which is they're really trying to capture a kind of Gen Z gig economy vibe. And they kind of managed to. It's a little annoying sometimes, but it's actually, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, and it's just like, you know, it's like wacky physics fun with cars that could like jump, you know, and uh, insurance fraud mini game where you throw yourself in the traffic and like see how many cars can run into you. Um, I actually think, I, I don't know, I got a really bad rap in the press, which I, I think wasn't undeserved, but on the other hand was a game where the expectations were impossible because you have, frankly, a kind of toxic Saints Row fandom that really just wanted them to be like anti-PC. And then on the other hand, you had other people that wanted them to just ditch their kind of sense of humor altogether. And they kind of went in between, right? Like they still kept that sense of humor, but they didn't like try to own the libs or something, right? Like, and so instead they like really featured like women of color and they featured like young people trying to make it in a city that was too expensive to live in and i don't know i kind of liked it um yeah so those are like i don't know those are the two games that kind of stand out that i've played uh recently i guess the most um i played other games that are kind of fun that i've jumped around then and we'll talk about a bunch proteus is a first person kind of shooter kind of a boomer shooter and that it's like a throwback shooter a bit but it has particle effects and lighting effects that you couldn't possibly have done in the 90s and it just looks damn good i think it's maybe got some like voxel stuff going on um and it feels amazing the weapons feel distinct it's very kind of doom 2016 meets doom 1990 what two is that right 94 um you split the difference in 93 Oh, nice. All right. Um, it's good. And it's on Game Pass. And I highly recommend people play it. It's got a kind of medium length campaign, but then it has a level builder and people are really like making stuff for it. And that stuff is available on both console and PC at this point. Oh, so, very cool. It's cool. You know, you when you're on console, you often don't get access to that kind of stuff. But they made it so that their platform enables you to have access to it. So that's cool. Speaking, uh, speaking of things that couldn't have happened easily in 1993, but which we're finally getting in 2022, uh, consoles being able to have, you know, user-generated stuff that is on par with, with that of the PC experience. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, even Switch is starting to get some of the Skyrim mods, right? <laughs> In a sort of roundabout manner. Um, for, for $70. You can for 70 Skyrim bucks, again. yes. Yeah. yes. <laughs> the, most, um, the most currently expensive version of Skyrim that you can buy. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's the Nintendo tax. Which, I mean, so the Nintendo tax right now, right? The way you justify the Nintendo tax right now, which is to say Nintendo games always cost a little more, right? But the way you justify it, besides the fact that like, Nintendo first-party games are often of a kind of immaculate quality, um, you know, and, and I think that's undeniable. Um, you cannot like Breath of the Wild for not having like big dungeons, which I'm going to guess the next game is probably going to correct for. Uh, but at the same time, like it's a damn good game. Um, but what you're paying for when you pay for that Nintendo text now is portability, right? Mm-hmm. You're paying to be able to play it on the go on a Nintendo Switch. But then there's a Steam Deck. And I don't think that I would suggest that people replace a Switch with a Steam Deck unless you're really into PC and which and have a big Steam library, in which case you might consider it if you're not big into first-party Nintendo games and not into emulation, because you can play Breath of the Wild on Steam Deck if you kind of do some roundabout things. Uh, I don't know what I was expecting. I almost canceled my order. I like put that $5 pre-order down and then got the email like, you know, six months later and was like, oh, do I really want to do this? Do I really want to spend the money? I'm going to have to sell some of my board games to do this. Uh, and I pulled the trigger. And it's a lot better than I expected. It feels better than I expected. The haptic integration is better. Even the trackpads have haptic integration. And it's actually kind of important. Um, because as you like slide over the left haptic for some games where like the numpad, the numbers pad on a keyboard would be useful, it actually makes you feel the difference between the one, the two, the three, and so on. Like you can actually feel it and it pops up visually, but you also feel it as your finger slides from one to the other key uh, via this left trackpad. Um, the screen's also bigger than a Switch screen by, I'd say, about like, one and a half times as big, roughly. So for Roger, it might be a little wide. It is. A, I mean, it feels a lot better than I expected, but it is a little wider. Uh, but it feels By way, the way better than I expected. Really quick question. What's the cost? What was the cost of the... Okay, so there's three different exactly. tiers. I went with the middle tier and almost wish I would have went the higher tier. It is expensive. It's like 500 bucks for mm. the middle tier. Um, comes with a case for what that's worth. The fi- The middle tier is... 500 uh, gigs, so half a terabyte. Um, and, you know, I have extra memory on its way. It does uh, mini SD memory. Uh, and it has a really good bus for the memory, from what I understand. So it actually doesn't change uh, how fast things load very much and how things play or the frame rate of things. Um, things I've been playing. Final Fantasy 15, which plays like a charm on the highest settings. Assassin's Creed Syndicate, which I'm playing on medium settings, plays like a charm. I tend to lock things at 30 frames per second because that doesn't bother me. And you get more battery life. You know, you get the three to four hours instead of like two hours or something. Um, and what else? I'm playing a, just a lot of different things just to see if I can. Resident Evil Village, uh, which is surprising, <laughs> you know, works on it. Uh, you know, so you're getting that's relative. A, that is a pretty contemporary game, but yeah. Capcom is uh, very good at optimization this this time out. There, I mean, it is funny, right? Like something like Disco Elysium has a hard time on it, but only because Disco Elysium is so poorly optimized. Um, it, well, it takes a lot of extra work, you know? It does. Uh, it does. And they and they're like, you know, relatively new company. I will say also, it looks like ZAUM, the company that made it, uh, and the art collective that made it is imploding right now. Ooh. Um, which is sad. I'm uh, sorry to hear that. I didn't know that. Yeah. There there was a medium article released by one of the founders that basically is like everybody's been pushed out. Oh. Um, all the like key creators for Disco Elysium aren't at the company anymore. Um, yeah, it sucks. Including uh, the writers and the main artist. Fantastic. I think Disco Elysium is. I, I, exactly. 
yeah. widespread opinion. Um, yeah. it, it is, uh, I'm sorry to hear that that band is breaking up. Yeah. So uh, all of this is trickling out and I don't, I don't read Eastern, you know, in Eastern European languages, which is where some of this news is coming out, but it seems pretty confirmed at this point that it's like, not quite sure what's happening, but people are getting pushed out. Um, but yeah, long story short, like, you know, Devil May Cry 5 works like a charm on this thing. Uh, and your entire Steam library is there and it loads pretty easily. The one thing I will say is that some games require a little work, like right? some games require a little like finickiness and, you know, things are less transparent and or not, it's more transparent, meaning you have more control over the settings in the way that you do with PCs, right? And for some people, that's not going to be the thing they want. Right. Some games will work just immediately. Some games, like if you want them to run longer, you knock the settings down. Some games, like Assassin's Creed Syndicate, I had to mess around a little bit to get through the Uplay launcher. But now it works like a charm. And I get to play this game that I've played before while watching Shameless. Um the television. I have show. a recommendation for you. If if you don't mind a little work and you want a game to play on the Steam Deck, please do. That that you know you might not want to play on the Switch because of Joy-Con drift. Why not play Sin and Punishment? I mean, I, I if I can figure out how to do it, I might. I might absolutely. I mean, I've also got like you know just to make sure people are you know my charm. The charm here is not just new games. The fact that you can play some AAA games on it, and quite a number of them, Horizon Zero Dawn, for example, God of War, the most recent God of War, plays on it. Uh, you can also play old games. So I've got like the first Deus Ex loaded on it. You know, I've got System Shock 2 loaded on it. That's something I'm willing to pay 500 bucks. Yeah, for. I know, right? I want my, my 89 cent copy of, you know, Steam copy of Deus Ex uh, is just waiting for this machine. I mean, there's a way in which this is like, it's a hard like decision about whether or not you do this, right? Like get a machine that costs as much as a PS5. I'm lucky enough that I have these other consoles. Would I have got this if I didn't already have a Steam library with, you know, hundreds of games that I've accumulated over 20 years? I don't know. But I do have hundreds of games in my Steam library. And I very rarely pull open my, like, PC gaming laptop because it's, like, not as comfortable to do as, like, just having a Steam Deck in my hand. And you can, yes, you can, you can play a Total War game on this and it plays pretty well. You can play like a strategy game and it plays pretty well. Um, I you think, think in, yeah. in terms of like the consoles, the different console wars or whatever, do you think that this changes a lot about the landscape? I don't think it changes anything yet. And I don't know if it ever will. Um, I do think that this has the kind of support that Valve has never put behind any other hardware and is being adopted in a way that like none of their other sort of experiments have, which makes me more optimistic about it than say i don't know asserting the google console non-console uh that is going the way of the dodo yes a, a google console that google would like us not to name in fact they'd yes. like if everyone could just forget about it and never yeah. say its name again definitely not three times in the mirror to make it appear yeah that would appeal greatly to google but they are doing refunds which you know i guess kudos they've got I, they have the money i'm confused as to why they're buying it back uh so, so in other console news, uh, Google has decided that Stadia is no longer a thing and they are giving refunds for all hardware and all purchases that pe- any, any poor you know, suckers made through uh, that platform. I mean, including game purchases. Including game, you know, you, you, so, you know, if you've enjoyed a couple of years of Stadia, then you're, it's on Google, uh, you know, it's on their dime. The thing about that, that, I'm most interested in is they had this really bizarre uh, exhibit that they had uh, Frank Spaldi of the video game archives put together when they launched it. And it had an Atari, it had uh, copies of ET, the video game, and a a Sega Dreamcast. And then there was this empty podium that was like, what's next? And everyone was like, this is confusing messaging because are you saying... (laughs) In the empty podium, you're going to put your thing here and you're going to put it next to things like E.T., which legendarily led to a, a whole crash for the video games industry in the 80s and, and et cetera, et cetera. 
And the weird thing about that E.T. game that I think everyone loves as a piece of trivia is that there are just, they, they printed so many of these cartridges that there are landfills and there's like a strata of E.T. cartridges in a landfill. So if you like drill down in it like a geologist, you'd hit the E.T. layer. And I, I, I can't help but wonder if Google is buying back everything, including the controllers. So all the plastic and everything that they, in yeah. circuits, they went into the stadium. Are they just going to centralize those in a landfill somewhere? And if so, is there going to be a stadia layer in this midden for future you know, archaeologists? Not video game, not media archaeology, just straight up physical, traditional, you are digging through long lost cultures garbage. And, and they're going to hit this layer of stadia. Don't you think they'll just launch it into the sun now? Just to save the embarrassment. You know, that, you're right. That's what we need to do. We need to put rocket fuel, more, more compressed petroleum of a different variety, and we need to load it up with a bunch of molded petroleum in the shape of Stadia controllers. And we need what we really need to do is throw it away from our planet as far as possible. That that into is into the sun. <laughs> The sun's fine. <laughs> you just throw everything into the sun. That's what's super. Yeah. That, that is what's great about, about the sun, after all. You know, yes. it isn't it isn't the it's hot. It's really hot. You you can just throw whatever you want into the sun. It's fine. It's fine. It's a universal trash can. It burns yeah. everything. It's oh like Kirby's stomach. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the console landscape right now is so it is still pretty fixed, right? Like I don't, I don't, I think I do think streaming is going to be the kind of real variable over the next years. But the timeline of that, of like the degree to which it affects things, I think is much longer than people initially thought it was going to be. In the same way that like, you know, people thought VR was going to like reconfigure the gaming landscape, and VR has done really interesting things, but instead it's become a element of the gaming landscape rather than something that's restructured it and that's where streaming is now but streaming i think has in fact a lot more potential than vr to like restructure just generally what gaming is and how we game and i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing um to be honest you know um but stadia wasn't it and because google you know I mean, they did so many things wrong. Jason Schreier, like, taught, like, did an expose about how many millions and millions of dollars they paid companies to put their games on Stadia. Like, outrageous sums that they just didn't need to do. You know, like, companies would have done it anyway for, like, smaller sums. Or right, like, sums. You, you look at all of the games. Hundreds of millions. Epic has given away for free. And Epic even publishes their accounts of this yeah right? to, so to the point where you can see oh here's how many downloads of this and then make a calculation based on like how much a dev was paid in a contract to have it be part of that game's promotion and in general it's not a lot i mean a lot of these are, are contracts in only the tens of thousands of dollars right if you know so so epic is over here handing out five and six figure contracts and google is handing out seven and eight yeah but the same it was a strange thing. It was like, it felt more like they were just like engaged in a lark, you know, than actually like serious about it in a certain way, which is a, you know, strange thing to be when hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, in fact, are being spent. But, you know, I guess Google. So, yeah. So I don't maybe, think they'll miss it. I, no, I, they won't. I, I, I don't think on Google's end that this is actually gonna be something like i think they're just like which yeah. as evidenced by like this wasn't a major announcement that they were shutting no. it down i would say this was closer to them just being like so this is done now and i did feel bad <laughs> like there were game developers who were like actively working on support for it that were like what were we doing oh, for oh, this yeah. you know yeah, and people, i felt games are still in development for this yeah and they found out on twitter these yeah. developers they which found out bad about basically that published a public shrug and was like, yeah, hey, you know, and we'll give you back your money. And I yeah. imagine there's developers holding the bag here going, so... I wonder if they're... I mean, that that remains to be seen. It would not be surprised, surprising to me if developers weren't holding the bag for this. And in fact, a lot of these deals were up front 
Um, and I hope that's not the case, right? Because a lot of these were like smaller developers too that were doing yeah. some of these exclusives. You know, Ubisoft's not about to do a exclusive for Stadia, although they were actually heavily involved in some of the first games that streamed on it. Um, should we call it? Maybe we can skip non-game recommendations this time just for time's sake. You know, we talked games, we talked business, we talked hardware. Yeah. We it's talked the world. Podcast. We talked religion. We did. Yeah. You know? Cults. Yeah. Do, do we industry. have a, a, a Cohen from our future cult leader to sign us off? Yeah. Roger, any words of wisdom? Did he freeze on that note? Well, okay, whenever recording. you feel like chaos much. Really? Can you hear me? Now he can. Wait, did you hear me? No. Now we can. <laughs> we missed the Cohen. Whatever, I was doing it. My my mic went out. Somebody didn't want me to deliver my message, y'all. The power does that be? That's if, hilarious. Like I was. Roger I was, delivers celestial wisdom on a podcast. Did you see and me? Did you see freezes. my face really start deliver? to do it? Oh, oh I'm my so gosh. frustrated. That was we gonna be too, really Roger. good. That was gonna be a classic moment. Gamers were a classic moment, you know. It, it would it would have changed everything. Yeah.